Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. It was an era much like our own, but with clunky cell phones and very sluggish internet connection. And like today, there was a national fervor because Star Wars was coming back to the theaters. Now, for its 20th anniversary, the adventure of a lifetime returns to the big screen with newly enhanced visual effects. They're coming in too fast! And a few new surprises. Josh Gilliland was in college. He was part of that generation that had only seen Star Wars on VHS. This was going to be his chance to experience what we all experienced in 1977, and then some. But something happened that changed the course of movie fandom forever. So let's set the scene. We're in the bar, the cantina. Now, of course, when we first meet Han Solo, he's about to accept a job flying Ben and Luke to Alderaan with no questions asked. 17,000. Those guys must really be desperate. This can really save my neck. Get back to the ship and get her ready. Han is thrilled, it's a lot of money, but suddenly he's stopped by a green, bug-eyed dude called Greedo. And this exchange takes place at gunpoint. Words are said, and we get threats. Over my dead body. When Han says, over my dead body, we get the reply, that's the idea. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I bet you have. Han replies, yeah, I bet you have. And then there's the blaster shot, and the rest is movie history. But not anymore. George Lucas had re-edited the scene with new special effects so that Greedo fires first. Hits the wall next to Han, and then Han Solo shoots him dead. How do you miss at two feet? Seriously, how do you miss at two feet? Sorry about the mess. I remember that moment, I was just confused. I was like, wait, wait, what What just happened? But Josh immediately understood what happened. I remember gasps. And people just stunned. You know, I remember thinking like, what the hell? Because... The enhancements that they added with, like, spaceships floating around or, you know, the droids floating as they're going about, um, those were enhancements. And people were okay with, like, the background. 
But that altered a major scene fundamentally. It's a very specific moment that defines that character, that he's not going to be bullied, he's not going to be intimidated, and when threatened, will take the appropriate action. The journalist Jonathan Last was also pretty horrified back in 97. I mean, that's your first big character moment with Han. You know, you get a little bit of a sense of him when he sits down with Obi-Wan. And he seems like he's a little bit boastful. He sort of is funny. Uh, he's cocky. But you don't get the sense that he is a real cowboy who is willing to willing to shoot, not quite in self-defense, but in an aggressive way. And it tells you all sorts of things about him going forward. And it also, I think, in a way, makes his ultimate character arc, where by the end, he's this real selfless guy. You're all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. You know, he's General Solo by the, by the very end. He's, you know... He's, he's responsible for tons of people around him, and he's always volunteering for dangerous missions. General Solo, is your strike team assembled? Uh, my team's ready. I don't have a command crew for the shuttle. That's going to be rough, pal. I didn't want to speak for you. That's one. General, count me in. I'm with you, too. It makes that character arc that much more complete, I think. Um, and I don't know that it cost us anything. You know, I, if you really are worried about the kids, it was such a subtle thing when you're watching it. When I first saw Star Wars, I guess I was probably, you know, nine or ten years old, maybe eight. Uh, I don't think that it registered to me that Han shot first. You're kidding, because I remember at the time I felt it immediately in the audience, in that 1977 audience, that he shot first and that he was a fucking badass for doing it. See, well, you you were a much more sophisticated movie viewer than I was. Well, I don't know about that, but maybe as a kid, I was still pretty tapped into the zeitgeist of the 70s. America kind of went through a ringer, and we went from being the bright, optimistic 1960s to this beat-up 1970s. So I think people would have been a little more callous. We would have also had more Westerns. I think, uh, if I remember right, The Shootist, John Wayne's last movie before he died of cancer, was in the early 70s. Actually, it was 1976, the year before Star Wars. Sir? Are you hurt? No. But they are. Call Marshall. So seeing a callous hero who is threatened, shoots a guy, and kills him... People didn't, like, march in the streets over that. You've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? I mean, some of the most popular action franchises of the time were Death Wish and Dirty Harry. Well, do you, punk? <laughs> the really interesting thing about that controversy, which I think, by the way, we should call the, the hand shot solo controversy, because it wasn't that he shot first. It was that he was the only guy who shot. Chris Taylor wrote a book called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. You know, it's clearly not in the original script. As much as Lucas has said that was his intention at the time, it was clearly referencing a a Western gunfight. Um, But Lucas has has tried to defend it time and again. Of course, at this point, I need George Lucas here to argue his counter-defense, but um, he was busy. But he has said that he always intended Greedo to shoot first, that it was just sort of bad filmmaking on his part, even though a lot of research into the original production indicates otherwise. That's why the fans believe he just had a change of heart. And Josh Gilliland says that's actually kind of common. As people age, you know, you go through life experiences and you 
your point of view changes. And some people stay consistent. Some people stay totally true to to what they believe. But some, after they have kids, after they've had life experiences, you see a shift. You know, a nice comparison is Supreme Court justices, that you see them change views on the bench after they've been there a couple decades or their kids grow up and they see things differently. Now, during this time, the debate around guns and violence in the media was getting more heated. Following Lucas's lead, Steven Spielberg re-released E.T. on its 20th anniversary with new special effects, where he digitally erased all the guns from the belts of the government agents and replaced them with jangling keys, a decision he later regretted and quietly put the guns back for the Blu-ray edition. But Lucas has never wavered. He was just asked about this recently, and he said, yeah, he did base Han Solo on a John Wayne-type character, and in those movies, the bad guy always shoots first or makes a clear gesture he's about to shoot. I mean, I actually think it's to his credit that he was lying awake at night worrying about the morality of killing Greedo. Because to be honest, if that character were a human being speaking English and not a green alien speaking a weird made-up language, I bet more people would have been bothered by it. But Josh Gilliland says Han Solo is still not a killer if he shoots first in the scene. Besides being a lawyer in Silicon Valley, Josh runs a website called The Legal Geeks, where he delves into the moral and legal conundrums of fantasy films. I did the employee safety issues in Jabba the Hutt's palace, uh, you know, from having the trap door to going out to the Sarlacc pit and whether or not Boba Fett as an independent contractor, uh, what duty of care was owed to him. And he intends to prove, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that Han Solo was acting in self-defense when he shot first. There are different views on the use of deadly force. And so in common law, deadly force is justified in self-protection if the defendant reasonably believes that its use is necessary to prevent imminent unlawful use of deadly force by the aggressor. Which then gets us into some states have a retreat rule and some states do not. So if a person can safely retreat... They should do that. His, his back is literally and figuratively against the wall. Yeah, he has no place to go. We can also say that he had a reasonable belief because of the tone of the conversation. He's being threatened. I will kill you. He, now, granted, that's not exactly stated, but we do have the statement, that's the idea. Would, would you call this a stand your ground case? Yeah, it, it's definitely a form of it. You know, this gets political quickly, but there are a lot of people who literally don't understand self-defense. I mean, there are the horrific 911 calls where you have somebody say, I see someone on my property, I will go kill them. And you hear the 911 operator saying, like, no, don't do that. You hear a click and bang, and, and the person say, like, yeah, I got him. It's like, dude, that's murder. It's <laughs> – you weren't – you did not have a reasonable belief that you were going to be killed. Given the fact that Han has dealt with bounty hunters, that he's dealt with Jabba, that he knows that it's very likely out on Tatooine he could die, the use of deadly force would have been justified in that situation. Finally, Lucas just said, look, this is my movie. I can do whatever I want with it. The fans, of course, responded, This is our childhood. You're ruining it. 
The slogan, Han shot first, became a statement of rebellion. You probably saw it on t-shirts. I think it became one of the first internet memes. It was also the first shot in a very long and protracted war between George Lucas and his own fan base. As Star Wars, the franchise matured, fandom itself was also maturing. And I don't mean in terms of age, but I just mean in terms of becoming more complicated and sophisticated. Annalie Newitz created the site io9. She's now an editor at Ars Technica. And she says the sense of fan entitlement that first began with Han Shot First is now part of the tug and pull between every studio and every fan base for every franchise. Yeah, I think I think what you're seeing is the development of an idea that fans do kind of own these stories as much as the creators do, if not even more, because fans are the ones who are spending all that money collecting the toys and, you know, collecting the movies and collecting every collector's edition of the movies. And so they become almost like constituents. You know, they're they're not just passive people in a movie theater just kind of soaking it all in. They're actually participating in creating the culture of Star Wars. He's derided Blade Runner, for example, which he says is available six ways from Sunday. You know, you have the director's cut, you have the original narrated version, and so on and so on. And Lucas said, no, there's only one version of Star Wars, and it's my version. It's the latest version. And, you know, the Blu-ray is the final, absolute definitive version of Star Wars. But, you know, the interesting thing with him being so unmoving on that is that fans have gone and done their own versions you know fans who are actually much much better at you know refurbishing the old film and recreating special effects um so you have these what are called despecialized editions all over the the darker portions of the internet this generation felt empowered by the origin story of george lucas himself the indie filmmaker who defied the hollywood establishment and did his own thing And the fans were undermining George Lucas with the same digital technology that he helped develop. And you had things like the phantom edit of episode one, where Jar Jar was taken out because fans were so grossed out by Jar Jar, which for obvious reasons, because it was a terrible mistake of a character. Now you have this incredibly democratic situation where, you know, Star Wars is available on the Internet 6,000 ways from Sunday. You know, I, I can respectfully say why I I might not like something or disagree with it. But the world owes George Lucas a huge debt for his imagination and vision and for turning it over to others to continue that legacy. And I agree. Lucas deserves credit for turning Star Wars over to Disney and letting it grow without him. And Chris Taylor thinks that Lucas only got to that point by coming to terms with the idea that he didn't really own Star Wars. No one does. I mean, he's, he's described it once in these sort of very grandiose terms, as there's this holy trinity, you know, he is the father, he takes care of the movie universe, uh, or took care of the movie universe, now Kathleen Kennedy does, you know, and then there's the son, and the son is sort of the licensing group and all of the expanded universe stuff and the novels and everything. Um, And he doesn't involve himself in what the son does. And then there's the Holy Ghost, and that's the fans. And he's like, you know, I'm the father. The son and the Holy Ghost can go their own way. So that's that's really how he viewed it. He just sort of kind of threw threw up his hands and said, you guys do whatever you want. It's interesting how Disney's marketing the new film, The Force Awakens, 
It's very different from the prequels, which are all about Lucas and what he's thinking, what he wants, what's he planning, is he ruining your childhood? My only hope. With The Force Awakens, the message is clear. This is your Star Wars, our Star Wars. Let's celebrate and buy stuff. I, I am certain that there are going to be more Han shopped first type controversies in the future. The interesting thing to me is that Star Wars is now in the hands of a corporation that will course correct because they are afraid of the fans in a way that George Lucas never was. But we shouldn't be too proud of this technological terror we've constructed. And by that I mean Twitter. Because at a certain point, filmmakers need to have leeway to make bold creative choices so the franchise can breathe and grow and not be just a big nostalgia trip. As for me, I'm seeing The Force Awakens on Sunday, December 20th in IMAX 3D. More on that in the next episode. Special thanks to Josh Gilliland, Jonathan V. Lass, Chris Taylor, Annalie Newitz, and Third World Famous. And when you see The Force Awakens, let me know what you think on the Imaginary World's Facebook page. But, you know, careful about spoilers. I tweet at E. Malinsky. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. The Evil Trade Federation Secret plans to build a space station Interplanetary conflict and Hyperspace to your destination What are you gonna do With a Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.